Welcome back to the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast. I'm your host, Allison, and today I have an episode that was actually completely unplanned because I had to readjust my topic three different times because I've apparently lost my mind. I don't know. But what happened was I did a poll on Instagram and it said, basically, pick your episode this week. Do you want it to be about growing up Caroline and JFK Jr. or about Ted's career? So everybody voted for, well, the majority voted for uh, Caroline and JFK Jr. and growing up in their childhood and all that kind of stuff. So sit down Monday, start looking, get to working on it, and realize there is really a lack of source material online for that particular topic. Like, I could have pulled some stuff together, but it just wouldn't have been very good, in my opinion. So after that happened... I thought, well, I need to finish reading the Kennedy Airs first, and then I can do that topic. So that was out the window. Then I was like, okay, well, 25% voted for Ted's career, so I'll just do that one. So I sit down and start studying that, and I was like, wait, I've already kind of done this, I think, but why is it still on my topics list? Because I have like a running list of all the topics that I do. I was like, this feels like I've already studied this. I'm confused. So I go back, and lo and behold, a pretty good while ago, I did one on Ted's life and career. So I was like, what the heck? I had just forgotten to take it off of my topic list and it slipped my mind and I just lost my mind. I don't even know. So uh, yeah, I had to come up with a completely different topic, but I'm actually really good with the one I landed on because I've learned a lot and I think it's really interesting to dive into it. So today I'm going to be talking about Abraham Zapruder and his life and the film in general and how, you know, how much he sold it for, kind of what he went through during that time in his life and how tragic it was for him. Also, he has a really interesting background. So um, yeah, I just... It just kind of came together. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Before we get to that, we had some serious Kennedy news this week. So let's get to that first. Big news story of the past seven days. This article was actually sent to me multiple times this week. And I find it interesting because I actually am an SNL fan. So I thought this was really cool. According to Newsweek, Pete Davidson and Colin Jost are buying a boat. But there's more to it, so let me explain. According to Newsweek, it says, Both Davidson and Jost are famously from Staten Island, New York, and regularly support the area. So the pair made a winning bid on the Staten Island Ferry at an auction last week led by Paul Italia, and the winning bid was $280,100. Italia told the New York Times what the trio plans to do with the vessel, which is known as the John F. Kennedy. He mentioned that there's an idea to turn it into an arts and entertainment venue. And he said the reality is that everyone who came together on this has a sincere motive to see the right thing happen to restore a piece of New York. So maybe in the future we will all be attending some kind of entertainment something at the John F. Kennedy Ferry that has been completely transformed by Pete Davidson and Colin Jost. That phrase just sounded like some weird like dream or something. <laughs> it doesn't make much sense, but it's cool. So I'm excited about it. Next up is a rough one. RFK Jr. is really taking some heat because this past weekend in an anti-vaccine rally in Washington, he, who is a vocal opponent of getting shots to protect against being hospitalized or dying from COVID-19, suggested that life for unvaccinated Americans is tougher than it was for people in Nazi Germany. He said, even in Hitler's Germany, you could hide in the attic like Anne Frank did. He's taking a lot of heat for that comment. He even 
was addressed in a statement from the Auschwitz Memorial, and they condemned the son of the former senator, saying, Exploiting of the tragedy of people who suffered were humiliated, tortured, and murdered by the totalitarian regime of Nazi Germany, including children like Anne Frank, in a debate about vaccines and limitations during global pandemic is a sad symptom of moral and intellectual decay. They said that in a tweet. And then his wife, Cheryl Hines, even came out and tweeted, My husband's reference to Anne Frank at a mandate rally in D.C. was reprehensible and insensitive. The atrocities that millions endured during the Holocaust should never be compared to anyone or anything. She said his opinions are not a reflection of my own. And then on Instagram, Carrie Kennedy even said, Bobby's lies and fear-mongering yesterday were both sickening and destructive. I strongly condemn him for his hateful rhetoric. He does not represent the views of Robert F. Kennedy human rights or our family. And some of the family members shared that as well. He then addressed all of the controversy by saying, I apologize for my reference to Anne Frank, especially to families that suffered the Holocaust horrors. My intention was to use examples of past barbarism to show the perils from new technologies of control. To the extent my remarks caused hurt, I am truly and deeply sorry. So that's all up in the news. If you guys want to go read more about it, uh, feel free to do so because it's literally everywhere. Now let's get to our recommendations segment. It's kind of a Q&A segment too, so it's going to be like a crossover of both. Of course, then we would recommend it. I got asked again multiple times this week what my favorite documentary or docu-series thus far is about the Kennedys, and I'm going to answer it again just for any new listeners or anybody that forgot my past answer or just is looking for a new Kennedy documentary to watch. My absolute favorite is American Dynasties, the Kennedys, the, I think it's a six-part series by CNN. I think it just delves in a really honest way into a lot of different facets of the family, and it's extremely engaging, extremely entertaining, and extremely educational. So that is my recommendation for the week. Now for the inspiring clip of the week. One of the inspiring notes. I actually found this clip when I was starting to make an episode about Ted for the second time, apparently. I kept it because I really liked this clip. This was from the 2008 DNC when Ted Kennedy spoke. He made a surprise visit, actually, because he was battling brain cancer at the time, and he came to express his support for Barack Obama. But it's kind of an emotional clip to watch as well because uh, it shows some of his family members, and you can see Maria Shriver kind of crying. And it was just very emotional for the family in general, I believe, because he was so ill. So take a listen to this. As I look ahead, I am strengthened by family and friendship. So many of you have been with me in the happiest days and the hardest days. Together, we have known success and seen setbacks, victory and defeat. But we have never lost our belief that we are all called to a better country and a newer world. And I pledge to you, I pledge to you that I will be there next January on the floor of the United States Senate when we begin the great... All right, so let's get to our episode. This week, my sources are Washington Post, the Sixth Floor Museum at Dealey Plaza, Wikipedia for a couple dates and things like that that I cross-checked, and findbiographies.com. I'll be quoting Washington Post fairly heavily because, you know, I can't make up the facts about his life. So uh, that'll be my main source, really. Also, I'm going to put a lot of audio clips and interview clips and stuff in this episode, too. So it should be pretty packed. 
Here we go. Abraham Zapruder was born on May 15th of 1905, and he was born into an Ukrainian Jewish family in the city of Kovel in the Russian Empire, which is now Ukraine. And his father's name was Israel Zapruder. I thought this was interesting. He only received four formal education years in Ukraine. In 1918, Abraham Zapruder left Covell for Warsaw with his family, and the story of them immigrating to America is actually really sad. Wikipedia says that at some point, Zapruder's brother was pulled off of a train and murdered in front of his family by Polish guards. But in 1920, his family did immigrate to the United States, and they settled in Brooklyn. And according to the Washington Post, Zapruder's daughter said that her dad's childhood in Russia had been terrible, just full of misery and starvation. And when he made it to America, he was only 15 years old, but he learned English, and he went to work as a pattern maker on 7th Avenue in New York's Garment District. She says that in 1941, at the invitation of a friend, he applied for a job in Dallas and became production manager for the Nardis Sportswear Company. And she also mentions, too, that he didn't even want to go. He really wanted to stay in New York since he had settled there. He was married to a woman named Lillian, and they had two children named Myrna and Henry. She told the Oral History Project of the Sixth Floor Museum at Dilly Plaza in 1997 that his family lived in an apartment in a four-unit building, and his mother lived down the hall, and his two sisters lived upstairs with their husbands. So it had to be a big and hard move for him to jump to Dallas. But he did, and he went. And in the 1950s, he started his own business. He started one clothing company that failed, but then he started another one that was successful called Jennifer Jr.'s. Jennifer Juniors was stationed on two floors of the Dow Tex building, which was across the street from the Texas School Book Depository. So that's why he was so close to the scene of the assassination. Okay, so let's skip to the day of November 22nd, 1963. He actually didn't even bring his camera with him that day to work. And... His secretary, Lillian Rogers, noticed that he didn't have his camera and basically told him, where is it? Go get it right now. And so he was like, "Okay, I guess I will. Goes home and gets it because Lillian said, Mr. Z, you march right back there. How many times will you have a crack at color movies of the president? The article also notes that his business partner, Erwin Schwartz, told him that he was crazy. The motorcade was going 100 miles an hour when it passed Dealey Plaza outside. And he said, you won't get to see anything, which was obviously very wrong. He always loved photography, loved videography, always took home movies of his family, and it was just kind of a passion of his at the time. By the way, the camera model was a Bell and Howell Zoomatic. So famously, he stood up on this concrete wall that looks out at Dealey Plaza and filmed what is now one of the most famous and, I would say, tragic clips in film history. Now, I'm going to insert a clip here from Abraham Zapruder himself telling what happened from there. A gentleman just walked in our studio that I am meeting for the first time as well as you. This is WFA-TV in Dallas, Texas. May I have your name, please, sir? My name is Abraham Zapruder. Mr. Zapruder? Zapruder, yes, sir. Zapruder. And would you tell us your story, please, sir? I got out in, uh, about a half hour earlier and get this a good spot to shoot some pictures. And I found a spot, one of these uh, concrete blocks that I have down near that park near the underpass. And I got on top there. There was another girl from my office. She was right behind me. And as I was shooting, as the president was coming down from Houston Street making his turn, it was about halfway down there. I had a shot. And he slumped to the side like this. Then I had another shot or two. I couldn't say it was one or two. And I saw his head practically open up, all blood and everything. And I kept on shooting. That's about all. I'm just sick again. I think that pretty well expresses the entire feelings of the whole world. So obviously, after you would see literally the most tragic and horrific thing 
right in front of you, he was devastated and in shock and didn't even know what to do, knew that he had this film, and it was just a horrible time. His secretary said in 1966 that he was literally hysterical. He was screaming. He was banging his desk. He just didn't know what to do. And at that point, his secretary offered him a drink, and he said, what are you talking about? Who wants a drink now? And he just was crying, utter shock and devastation. That part where he said, who would want to drink now reminds me, this is a side note, of that scene in Mad Men of, you know, after everyone learns about the Kennedy assassination and then Pete is drinking like early in the morning and Trudy says, are you drinking right now? And he says, the whole country is drinking right now. It's just like a complete opposite reaction. But that was a side note. Any Mad Men fans out there know exactly what I'm talking about. Back to the story. One of the reasons Zapruder was so upset is because he obviously knew what was on that camera. He knew how close he was. He knew what he had filmed and what he had in his hands. Here's a side note. Agent Forrest Sorrells, a part of the Secret Services Dallas office, actually noticed Zapruder filming the assassination. So he instantly knew that, you know, there's this guy that has this film that could possibly be necessary for the investigation. So he was already meeting with him and kind of following him around, trying to get the film, all that kind of stuff. So Abraham went and developed the film that very afternoon to see what he actually got. And instantly the press found out about it. And people were offering him money left and right to get the rights to this film. According to the Washington Post article, a wire service offered $100,000. Someone else offered $200 per frame. There was just a lot going on and a lot of decisions for Zapruder to make himself. After careful consideration, he actually chose to sell the film to Life magazine. Before we get into that, though, I want to play another clip of Zapruder talking in, I think it was 1966, about how he felt about the Warren Commission's findings and about how filming this moment affected him. When President Kennedy was assassinated here in Dallas, Abraham Zapruder was standing on this concrete parapet with an 8mm camera. And with that camera, he recorded the tragedy. Mr. Zapruder, uh, certainly no one had a better view of the assassination than you did. Uh, did you then and do you now agree with the findings of the Warren Commission? Yes, I absolutely do. In fact, I'm more convinced now because of these uh, controversial uh, publications coming out. I took uh, more of a little interest to read it more carefully. And I find that the findings of the Warren Commission are more substantial than their doubts. They have no facts, no uh, reason to believe that there was somebody else. They're just picking, or rather looking at the hole instead of the donut. Mr. Zapruder, have you taken any more movies since that uh, fateful day here? No, I'm sorry to say I used to be an ardent movie taker and uh, after that tragedy somehow I lost, I don't know what you call it, appetite or uh, desire to take pictures. I'm sorry, I have beautiful grandchildren growing up. I love to take some movies of them, but somehow I'll have to get back to it. But somehow I just didn't have the desire to do so until now. As I said, he chose to sell the film to Life magazine, and he only did it because the magazine agreed to handle the film with discretion and because he liked the quiet, well-dressed man the magazine sent to him, which was Richard Stolle. He had found Abraham Zapruder in the phone book and came immediately from L.A. to Dallas. 
Now, he said in an interview fairly recently that Zapruder said, as long as you're here, you might as well come in because I'm about to show the film to these two gentlemen who were Secret Service agents. So Stolly said that he set up a projector on a table in a small room with no windows, and the projector was aimed at a blank, whitewashed wall. He said, and I'm quoting him, we stood behind him and suddenly those flickering images came up on the wall. We all knew that the president had been shot and killed, but we didn't have the foggiest idea what it looked like. It says, as the film played and frame 313 came, Stully said he and the Secret Service men let out a groan. We knew there was a headshot, he said, but I have to tell you, there was no way to prepare us for that. I'm going to insert a clip here of Stolly himself speaking at the Sixth Floor Museum at Dealey Plaza about the negotiation process of the Zapruder film. Who made the decision at Time Incorporated to purchase all rights. It's never been quite clear. The, um, the film was um, hand-carried to Chicago, where the, the magazine was closing at the printing plant. Um, another copy went to New York, and there it was shown either late Saturday night or sometime on Sunday to, to all the executives at, at Time Inc. then, and um, I, I, I've been told, and I suspect it's correct, that the publisher of Life, a man named C.D. Jackson, um, who had been in CIA or OSS during the war, and is part of some of the conspiracy theories because of, of his wartime experience, I suspect he made the, the judgment that, uh, that we should get uh, not just print, but all rights, so we could, uh, partly so we could see what we might do with it, and partly, uh, and there was a very emotional factor here, partly to keep it out of the hands of people who would exploit it. Mr. Spruder was was just intense on that subject and um, uh, and and it's it, it's hard to exploit still pictures and a lot easier to exploit w w what you've just seen and um, and when I called him on Sunday uh, he seemed so relieved when he heard who it was on the phone and I said I said mr. Z we Mr. Bruder, I wasn't, I didn't know him well enough to call him Mr. Z at that point. I said, I'd like to come and talk to you. We want to buy all rights. And the relief in his voice was absolutely palpable. And when I walked in the negotiations on Monday, I have to tell you, I walked in, and this was in his lawyer's office, not in his office. A man named Sam Passman, who I think was a pretty well-known Dallas lawyer, walked into Passman's lobby, and, and uh, who should I see over here but Dan Rather? Now, he had not gone to work for CBS. He was, he had, was doing freelance work for CBS. I knew Dan. Dan and I had, had covered racial stories in the South together. He later wrote in his book, The Camera Never Blinks. He said, the door opened and Dick Stolly walked in. My heart sank. <laughs> uh, he, he said, I knew, I knew him from racial stories. I knew life had deep pockets. And 
I had been authorized to pay $10,000 for video rights. And uh, he saw the film. He also either agreed verbally or signed something that unless he was able, CBS, on behalf of CBS, was able to buy the video film rights to it, he was constrained from describing the film in any way. As soon as he saw me walk in, he walked out the door, got on the phone, and described the film in great detail, first on radio and then on television to CBS. Dan's a nice guy, but um, gives you some idea of the kind of the competitive juices that were flowing back then. Um, I won't say anything more about that. <laughs> so in the end, they paid him $150,000 for the rights to the film. And according to everywhere that I saw, he didn't want anyone to know how much money he got from it. He was very sensitive about money and didn't think it was anybody's business. So what happened after that, he ended up donating $25,000 of the money that he earned to the widow of the Dallas police officer, J.D. Tippett, who was also murdered by Lee Harvey Oswald. And the 26.6 seconds, 486 frame film has long outlived him as he passed away on August 30th, 1970 of cancer. It's always been a topic of conversation to conspiracy theorists, to people in general. I mean, I was listening to a documentary, not about the Kennedys or anything, a few weeks ago, and they mentioned the Zapruder film. It's just something that's so ingrained in the subconscious of, I feel like, our nation and more nations than even ours. It's just a known thing. The Washington Post article says that as years passed, conspiracy theorists sprouted and bootleg copies of the film leaked out and multiplied. And in 1975, Time, Inc., which owned the then-diminished life and had grown tired of caring for the sought-after footage, sold the film back to the Spruder family for a dollar. And three years later, it was stored as a courtesy in the National Archives where it is today. But then, on April 24, 1997, the board declared the Zapruder film public property and the government began negotiations to compensate Zapruder's children and widow. The family had already earned $878,000 in fees since 1976 for letting others use the film. And then the article goes on to say, but what was it worth? The Justice Department offered $750,000 for the film without the copyright, but the Zapruders asked for $18.5 million for the film and the copyright, according to news reports. Finally, they came to an agreement on August 4, 1999, after a special arbitration panel instructed the government to pay the Zapruders $16 million for the film, and the family later donated the copyrights to the Sixth Floor Museum. Now, this is just a fascinating ending to this article as well that just ties together just the Kennedy name and tragedy and phenomenon and all the things. It says the arbitration panel had actually reached its decision on July 16th, but delayed its announcement because of another national tragedy that day. A small plane had crashed off the coast of Massachusetts, killing three people, including its pilot, John F. Kennedy Jr. It's just crazy to me that the finances and the discussions and all the things of the Zapruder film literally ended on the day that John F. Kennedy Jr. went missing. That's so tragic and wild. Another thing I want to note about this story, that specific tragic fatal shots frame was kept out of public view for years and years and years. It was just too gruesome and Zapruder was very specific about not wanting that to be seen or shown to anyone or printed because it was just so terrible. 
So it literally was not shown to anyone until 1975, where it aired on television on Goodnight America. Like I said, this is literally the first time that anyone had seen it in its entirety on television at all. I'm going to insert a clip from that show. Now, it kind of starts out with them talking about it, and then they narrate the film as it's being shown. Big trigger warning for this. It's really detailed about the film and very tragic and gory. So if you don't want to hear that at all, then I would skip ahead like two or three minutes. Uh, Robert, welcome, and I wish you could set up the Zapruder film a bit for us, and we'll get right into it. Okay. Uh, Abraham Zapruder was a Dallas dress manufacturer, and it was pure accident that he brought the camera with him that day. He almost didn't. And he was looking for a good vantage point, and he picked a point on Elm Street in Dilly Plaza in downtown Dallas. As the motorcade passed in front of him, he got what is frame for frame the most valuable historical document of all time. It's become very chic among uh, television producers to uh, put a disclaimer at the head uh, of any film. The film you're about to see might be shocking, it might be horrifying, you might not want your, your kids to watch it. And I think the uh, unfortunate net effect of that is to make more people watch it. Well, I'm telling you right straight out that if you are at all sensitive, uh, if you're at all queasy, uh, then don't watch this film. Just put on the, uh, the late night movie uh, because this is uh, very heavy. It's the film shot by the Dallas dress manufacturer, Abraham uh, Zapruder, uh, and it's the execution of President Kennedy. And uh, Bob and Dick, would you please narrate what we're seeing as we show this film? This is, uh, this is commercial footage leading into Dealey Plaza. This is the car on Main Street. So this film was taken by actual newsmen. This was spliced together with the Abraham Zapruder film. Yes. All right, so this is the beginning of the motorcade. Okay, what you're seeing now is in slow motion so that you can grasp what is happening. Uh, this is a film taken by Marie Muchmore that leads into the Zapruder film. It's for time continuity. The president is waving to the crowd here. And Jacqueline Kennedy, of course, is sitting alongside him in the open car. Right. This is from Orville Nix's film. This, uh, this is originally 8mm footage. And they're heading now toward Elm Street. They're on Houston Street now. They're going to make a left-hand turn. It's on the corner where they're going to make the turn there that the book depository was. Now, this is the Zapruder film. Okay, so the cars are coming along now into Dealey Plaza? Yes. These are the lead motorcycles of the motorcade. All right. Now, with the president and Mrs. Kennedy is also Governor Connolly. Right. right. Now, before he goes behind the sign, the president is waving to the crowd. When he comes out from behind the sign, he is shot. Then Governor Connolly is shot. He's already been hit. He's already been hit. And now? And at the bottom of the screen, the head shot. That's the shot that blew up his head. It's the most horrifying thing I've ever seen in the movies. Now, the Warren Commission said that all of the shots were fired from behind by Lee Harvey Oswald, a lone assassin firing at the president, and as you can see, clearly, the head is thrown violently backwards, con completely consistent with the shot from the front, right. Now, this is an extreme blow-up of just the president from the film. All right. Coming out behind the sign, he's shot. He's hit from, he's the, hit here. from the front, too. He's from, from the, the front. front. Now, Jackie doesn't realize what's happened yet. She goes to his aid. And now? He's hit Again, from the violent backward motion totally consistent with 
80% of the witnesses which said the shot came from the grassy knoll in front and to the right. It's interesting to note how many people is running towards where most folks thought the shots came from. The head goes backwards in the next film uh, from the other side of the street. Oh, God, that's awful. That's the most upsetting thing I've ever seen. We'll talk about it in a minute. So that kind of wraps up what I'm going to talk about with Abraham Zapruder today. I do want to go further with the film and talk a little more intricately about it in the future because there's so much backstory and history to the film in general as well. The Sixth Floor Museum at Dilly Plaza actually has an article of FAQs about the film specifically. And there was a couple that I wanted to address um, just in case these were not things that you knew prior to this. But a common question that they get is, can you hear the shots on the Zapruder film? And this is a big no. The camera didn't record audio or anything. So there, there was no way for them to cross-reference shots versus visual. Another that they receive a lot is if the Zapruder film is the only film of the assassination, to which they answer that it is the only film known to exist showing all of the shooting. There's three other home movies that show part of the assassination, and as many as five still photographers took at least one picture while shots were fired. Several others made pictures immediately before or after the assassination, and at least three photographers remain unidentified, and their pictures, if any, are unseen. One more thing I want to note, too, that I've noticed just in studying, you know, everything around this is how many people died at Parkland Hospital. JFK passed away there. Then Lee Harvey Oswald did. Jack Ruby did. And then also Abraham Zapruder died at Parkland. So it's strange how many people in this story, you know, died at that hospital specifically. I don't know. That was just a side mental note that I thought you may find interesting as well. So anyway, I just think he was a really fascinating man. I I think that if anyone wants to film it as tragic as it was, I feel like he was the proper person because he handled it with such respect and care afterwards. He didn't want it to be exploited. He didn't want those very horrible frames to be printed or shown, which they probably would have been if he hadn't been so explicit about saying, no, we're not going to do this. You're not going to, you know, put these horrible things out there. He seems like a really respectable man and had quite the childhood and life leading up to him even being in Dallas on November 22nd, 1963. That's all I got. I hope you learned something new today. If you like the podcast, I know I say this every week, but will you please take just a second and write a positive written review on Apple Podcasts for me? It helps so very much. And if you don't want to write a review, then tap the five stars. That helps so much too. Make sure that you're subscribed because when you subscribe for the podcast, that adds to my subscribers list and that helps me as well. Also, I have a Patreon. So if you would like to help me with the show, toss in a few bucks every month to help me with marketing cost, with promotion, with just getting the podcast out there in general. I would really appreciate it if you if you would like to do that. So I'll put the link below so you can tap on that. Other ways you can support me, you can shop my merch. I've got lots of cool stuff on there and I'm coming out with lots of new designs too. So be on the lookout for those for spring. Also make sure you're following me on Instagram at Kennedy Dynasty to keep up with me pretty much every day. And uh, that's all I got. I'll talk to you guys soon. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, keep America strong. Kennedy, he just keeps rolling up. Kennedy, he just keeps rolling up. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged 
from Europe, the Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.